Welcome to the Prioritizing Prevention Translating Science to Practice podcast. Our goal is to prioritize prevention conversations that matter. Our topic for today is Impaired Driving Prevention with special guest Angie Byrne. Now here's our host, Holly Raffle. Hello, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 10 of the Ohio Center of Excellence for Behavioral Health Prevention and Promotion podcast, Prioritizing Prevention, Translating Science to Practice. My name is Holly Raffle, the Faculty Director of the Center, and I am pleased to welcome this week's guest, Angie Byrne. Angie serves as a Program Analyst in the Program Development and Capacity Building Division of the U.S. Department of Transportation, Volpe National Transportation System Center. Angie, I think you get the award for the longest workplace of all of the podcast guests to date. She has over 25 years of experience in addressing various traffic safety issues, including work in policy, grants, system development, project management, and program evaluation. Angie has worked in a broad range of topic areas in surface transportation with particular focus on initiatives like Vision Zero, Safe System Approach, Complete Streets, Youth Traffic Safety, and Impaired Driving. She received her Master of Public Health from The Ohio State University and has spent her career integrating the disciplines of public health and transportation. Angie's also an Ohio native, and we're so glad she's coming back to her home state for this podcast. This month, the center is focusing on impaired driving prevention, and I'm excited to share a conversation with Angie about the nuances of impaired driving, the legislation changes on recreational marijuana use in Ohio, and resources for the prevention workforce around impaired driving. Welcome, and thank you for joining us, Angie. Hello, thank you so much for having me today. So Angie, you've carved out a unique and important career navigating traffic safety as a matter of public health at the national level. To get us started, please tell our listeners about your personal and professional mission to integrate these disciplines of transportation and traffic and public health. So it's really about education for both the public uh, people working in public health as well as people working in the transportation industry about what each side does. Um, I can't tell you how often um, as a public health person, I've met with people in the transportation world who I was a nurse. And then, you know, conversely, when I meet with people in the public health field, thinking I'm an engineer. So I really try to look for ways to educate um, people about some of those misconceptions that exist between um, stereotypes of what a public health person does and what a person in transportation does. Um, just to give you an example of just how connected the disciplines are, um, transportation is one of the biggest barriers often associated to getting to medical appointments. And you know, that isn't going to be solved by just the public health community or the transportation community. People need to work together to address challenges like that. Um, so I, I especially really like speaking with young people um, uh, about broader public health opportunities and you know, those who are interested in going into less traditional uh, public health routes. So I'm just curious. So how did you end up at the Volpe National Transportation System Center? Did you just, you know, find a job uh, posting and apply or, you know, what really led you to the field of transportation and its intersection with public health? I, I had been interested in this field a long time. I actually, my interest started back in high school. Um, I had some classmates that had passed away in traffic crashes and it, it really, 
it broke my heart to see the reaction to a lot of the, those deaths because it was like this is teenagers die in car crashes this is what happens um and i wasn't okay with that i got very frustrated i got very involved in traffic safety at that point in high school and uh, just continued doing it uh, throughout my undergraduate program, my master's program. And then um, I had interned for the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration when uh, I was an undergraduate. And after I finished my master's degree and was looking for a job, there was an opportunity up in the Region 1 in Cambridge office in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So that's how I ended up um, you know, working professionally in the field of transportation safety worked for NHTSA for 10 years. It was a great 10 years. Um, but I really wanted to do address safety from a broader perspective than just uh, behavioral traffic safety. So that's when I switched over to the USDOT Volpe Center and uh, started working with um, a much broader range of transportation safety issues, including working with motor carrier safety, uh, I working with blind zone and vehicle design issues. So really being able to address transportation from a true systems perspective instead of just uh, certain pieces of it. I really appreciate you sharing your personal story with us. We have many folks who listen who are new to the field, new uh, to prevention or recent grads, and hearing people's career paths is always interesting to that group of listeners out there. So thank you. In your current role with the U.S. Department of Transportation, how have you interacted with programs at the community level? The biggest pride and joy I have right now in my professional career, and it really was my traffic safety fantasy come true, is being involved with standing up the Safe Streets and Roads for All program. It was one of the new grant programs created by the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, and um, it, it goes to local communities as opposed to states to address whatever the traffic safety issue is in a local community, be it a county level, tribal level, MPO level. Um, and so I, working with those communities has been absolutely amazing because I've heard from talking to so many of them, it's the first time they've ever applied for a federal grant before. Um, it, it's a new process. And I can't tell you how often I'll get phone calls from people being like, oh my gosh, I can't believe someone from the federal government called me back to help me fill out a form. So it's been an incredibly rewarding experience. And it's such an amazing grant program because it really lets the communities decide what the problems is and what the challenges are in their communities and providing funding to address those. Wow, Angie, that is really probably music to our listening audience's ears. In substance use prevention and mental health promotion, we utilize the strategic prevention framework. And what that is, is a planning tool uh, that describes exactly the process of your grants where folks identify the problem that uh, they would like to work on most in their community and then use data on how to address it. So it's so interesting to see that those same skill sets transcend disciplines. It, this is what I was talking about. There's a lot of connections between public health and transportation. <laughs> Ones that you would never even expect. Um, so one of the areas where traffic safety and behavioral health converge is the issue of impaired driving. We know that alcohol is one substance commonly associated with impaired driving. And we also know that there are many other physical and mental influences that alter individuals' sense of safety when they're behind the wheel. Alcohol, other drugs, prescription medications, mixing of multiple drugs or medications, 
fatigue, drowsiness, or even like experiencing intense emotions, you know, when you're feeling angry or, or upset can cause impairment. So I'm just curious, how do you define impaired driving? I think you hit the nail on the head in the way that you just described it. Um, I mean, traditionally, it's been described as operating a motor vehicle while affected by alcohol and or other drugs, including prescription drugs, over-the-counter medications, and illicit substances. That's a very traditional take on it. However, that definition has expanded over time to include just the things that you just identify. Um, it can be impairment from a visual perspective, a manual perspective. It can be a cognitive impairment as well that diverts an operator's focus of the task at hand of operating a vehicle. Um, and it can include things like you just identified, distracted driving, fatigue, drowsy driving, and emotional operation as well. Well, thank you so much. And with the advent of, you know, cell phones, smartphones, technology devices, even back in the day with GPS and garments, um, what trends are you seeing emerge on the types of impairments that we're seeing on our nation's roadways? You know, one of the biggest rises we're seeing right now is in poly drug use. That is um, drivers testing positive for both alcohol and other impairing substances. Um, marijuana has also been increasing with the illegalization happening in a lot of states. Well, that may, that's interesting because you're seeing these types of impairment increase. So how does impaired driving connect to behavioral health? Yeah, there's a, behavioral health can play such an important role um, in using harm reduction strategies to prevent people from operating vehicles while impaired in the first place. Um, it can include things as basic as like designating a dr uh, driver or a designated texture uh, while in your vehicle. It can be um, doing empowering of people to speak up when they're in situations where they feel unsafe in the vehicle with, you know, a driver that's in experience in any sort of impairment. Um, you know, it can also in reduce uh, and be involved with like uh, motivational interviewing techniques and using that and bringing driving into motivational uh, interviewing situations where you're trying to reduce harm. So in uh, substance use prevention and mental health promotion, we like to look at risk and protective factors. Is that something that you look at in your work as well? Often, yes. We'll talk about like the risk factors being harm to yourself, harm to others, you know, predispositions toward impairing substances. Those are just a few things. As for protective factors, you know, things like self-control, seat belts, um, if you are in a crash, how quick can uh, emergency response get there are all critical protective factors as well. Absolutely. If you don't mind, I'd like to spend some time discussing some of those evidence-based practices to prevent impaired driving. What strategies have you seen work or what strategies have you seen localities employ in their uh, areas? Well, I think the most important thing to keep in mind is addressing impairment isn't going to be solved by like a silver bullet approach. You really need to take a systems perspective, meaning that you have to create multiple layers of redundancy uh, to be truly successful in addressing it impaired driving. I like to kind of give the Swiss cheese analogy. So, you know, if you keep adding slices, eventually you start to like get rid of those holes. And when you clear enough of those holes, you'll be successful in addressing your challenge. So, um, you know, some of the ways that people can ex address add one of those layers of Swiss cheese um, as a behavioral health person is a great resource out there is the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration or NHTSA's Countermeasures That Work Guide. 
There's a lot of great resources in there for behavioral health professionals that include things like laws and general deterrence, um, drug courts, um, treatment options, things like that. But really, like impaired driving, there's opportunities to address it from a wider systems perspective, too. Um, some of those strategies could include things like passive interlock systems that prevent drivers from starting a vehicle in the first place. It can include greater access to safe and reliable transit service, uh, multimodal options to get home safely. And even thinking very big picture, things like you know, more mixed use development and zoning that allows for walkable patronages to businesses that sell um, products that impair. Wow, that's amazing. So you're really looking all across, um, you know, personal, interpersonal, uh, even neighborhood factors all the way out to policy. So you're really looking at that social ecological model of public health. Absolutely. And for those uh, who are listening to us why they are driving, don't worry, we will put a link to that toolkit in the show notes. And so if you're out on a walk or you're driving your car, don't worry, you can have access to that and we'll make sure we get that in your hands. So Angie, one of the topics that's on a lot of minds in Ohio this month is the recent legislation change regarding cannabis for recreational use. So with this change, our prevention workforce is very interested in how we can keep roads safe while individuals may choose to use cannabis legally. So from your vantage point at the national level, I'm interested in your perspective on traffic safety related to driving under the influence of cannabis, particularly in other states where it's already been legalized. So to that end, what types of physical and psychological impairment uh, do individuals experience or could experience when they're under the influence of cannabis? It can be a range of um, impairments that involve like things like slower response time, um, more risk-taking, decision-making, lane tracking, which is um, staying in your appropriate lane while driving, uh, attention maintenance, cognitive performance. There's a lot of misconception out there, and I've heard from several people say they drive better when um, they've been using uh, cannabis and the active ingredient of THC. Um, and we found that it's just not the case, actually. Um, and because of things like slower response time, decision making, risk taking, et cetera. You kind of alluded to this before. But are psychological and physical impairments the same for everyone, or is there variance from person to person? You know, there's a lot more variance um, in a THC impairment than there is an alcohol impairment. Uh, so that it d affects individuals very differently from one another. So that leads me to another question. So if you were following someone on a road, would you be able to tell without, you know, knowing, obviously, oh, that person is likely under the influence of cannabis. Oh, that person might be under the influence of alcohol. That person might be texting while they're driving. Is there are certain patterns that people can pick up on um, when they're observing uh, impairment driving? Well, just, I mean, any anytime you see someone who's operating unsafely in the road, like allow some space. You don't know what's going on in the car. It could be impairment. It could be a small child. It could be mental stress and anxiety. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why you know people may not be tracking lanes um, or staying in. But if you s notice that that person is exhibiting especially dangerous in, uh, behaviors, like 
uh, call 911 and let them know your location and you know, make it aware so they, uh, so they can get someone to uh, address that person who's operating unsafely. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, that totally makes sense. And I appreciate you kind of giving a direction for our listeners so they can know what to do if they're ever in that situation. Yep. So getting us back to cannabis, what have you learned from the crash data in other states that have already uh, legalized cannabis use? It's not good news. Um, so, you know, because so, there's been a big push over the last several years of legalization in many states, you know, there, there's more and more research coming out, especially on like the early uh, adoption states such as Colorado. And for the states that have been studied, they're showing between somewhere between a 14 and a 20 point increase in traffic fatalities once marijuana has been legalized in this state. And it's not just the state itself that legalizes um, uh, cannabis and other substances. It's, you know, it, it affects the region as well. Uh, for neighboring states, those fatalities also are associated going up about 10% on a regional average. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, I wouldn't have thought about, you know, closely bordering states as well. Mm -hmm. When it comes to alcohol impairment, the legal limit in Ohio for blood alcohol content is 0.08. What are a few examples of misconceptions about managing or measuring driver impairment by cannabis? I'd say the number one misconception right now is that you can measure THC impairment in the same manner that you can measure alcohol impairment. They're very, very different. They're very different in the way that they interact with the body. So THC is much, much more variable than alcohol. So also the presence of THC does not indicate impairment. Um, there's some other things too. Alcohol uh, dissipates very slowly in the bloodstream, whereas THC is gone very quick um, within the bloodstream. So there, there's a lot of variance. And you know, long story short is we haven't found a good way yet to identify impairment with THC yet. Um, that being said, Ohio is one of the five states that have set a per se limit for THC, uh, measuring uh, blood, THC in the blood. Angie, I appreciate you explaining how we test for impaired driving. So how is that difference from testing for the presence of a substance versus testing impairment in the moment? It, it, impairment in, in the moment is what I was really focusing on in my response. And that there's a great variability in how you can test for THC um, in the moment to detect impairment is the key thing as well as alcohol. THC leaves the blood very, very quickly. Alcohol had the steady decline over time in the system. And just the presence of THC does not mean impairment. Neither does the presence of alcohol. But because we are able to establish a per se limit for alcohol doesn't mean we can do that same process for THC. And it's something we ideally would like to do, but research has shown time and time again, we can't um, determine impairment with THC in the same way that we do alcohol. I really appreciate you making that distinction between kind of in the moment impairment versus, you know, testing positive on a drug test days and days later. So given that, what new research or studies are underway uh, to look at the approaches that other states are taking to prevent driving under the influence of cannabis? 
Okay, so with TH, like with alcohol, for example, we know we can measure it well in the blood. We can measure it well in oral fluid testing. Um, and so we're really looking on, uh, there's a lot of research going on right now about how exactly do we detect impairment since we know doing it in the same way of as alcohol doesn't work. Um, there's also a lot of, you know, this is a fairly new trend introducing the legalization of marijuana. So like, and we know that there's more people using it as a result of legalization. So how do we better understand that data um, and understand the extent of our challenges and opportunities to address them? So lots of research going on, lots of topics. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's uh, whenever we do something for the first time, uh, we have to gain that body of research base moving forward. So how are you taking a look at lessons learned from those early adopters of cannabis use? Yes, and there's some great re resources out there. Um, I mentioned earlier the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, or NHTSA. They have a guide that's called Countermeasures That Work, and this is a great resource for particularly behavioral health professionals. And this, and the, and there's a brand new edition coming out any day now. Um, and this is really, if you're interested in traffic safety more broadly, is the Behavioral Traffic Safety Bible, for lack of a better term. It's a ginormous document full of lots of resources. Also, in the state of each state has a state highway safety office, and Ohio has a highway safety office. Um, as well. And they are wonderful resources and partners in addressing traffic safety in your state. They also have grant funding available too, in addition to the grant program that I spoke about, Safe Streets and Roads for All. I'm sure that our listeners would love to know how to get connected to those grants on the community level. Uh, so if they're interested in working with their federal or state agencies, how would you recommend they get started? Well, the Ohio Highway Safety Office has a website. Um, I just put it in your Google platform, um, as well as Safe Streets and Roads for All also has a program website, too, that's also searchable. Both have very long URLs, so um, I'm sure you guys can put it in the resources link later. <laughs> Absolutely, Angie. We'll put those in the show notes for sure. I have really enjoyed our conversation today, and I value and appreciate the wealth of knowledge that you're bringing to our listeners here today. And as we look to safely park our car for today's episode, I'd like to focus on a few key takeaways for our listeners, whether they're prevention professionals or other community members who have an interest in impaired driving prevention. So my first question is this, um, how can local coalitions, health, mental health providers work to expand that definition of impaired driving to make the communities they serve safer? Because I think what comes up to mind now is mostly, you know, substances like alcohol, uh, you know, cannabis or other drugs, but we've talked about a lot of other things. So how, how do you think that uh, at the local level, we can expand that definition to the general public? Well, a lot of communities right now are have received Safe Streets and Roads for All funding. We have, you know, roughly three quarters of the country covered now um, by what we are calling comprehensive safety action plans. Now, at a local level, those are called different things. They're called Vision Zero Action Plans, Toward Zero Deaths Plans, uh, Local Road Safety Plans. They have a lot of different names. But the, the key thing is knowing that there are probably people in your local community, your county, or a, maybe a regional effort that is already working on this issue. And trying to find those people is ways of getting involved in the effort. Um, 
we've really been encouraging it at a federal level to develop more partnerships and stop kind of operating in our existing silos that we have within traffic safety, not just looking at things from an engineering perspective, not just uh, seeing things from a planning or strictly public health perspective. There's so much opportunity for overlap and collaboration. And, you know, I think the first thing is recognizing that as public health professionals, we do have a role in addressing safety issues. Maybe there's opportunity of, you know, being more equitable in the way that we distribute our transportation resources. Public health people are fantastic about bringing that in as part of the conversation. Absolutely. And so for folks who are listening today who are, you know, coalition directors and they run those local alcohol and other drug coalitions or maybe suicide prevention coalitions, where would they look in their community to find the folks who are doing this work on transportation safety? Is it specific agencies? You know, what are you seeing in your grant work? I'd say mostly it's um, run by like your your local engineer or your local planning organization. Uh, some communities call that like a mobility director. So th- those are probably your first places to start. Well, thank you so much. I have a wonderful colleague uh, who was a mentor to me who always said the best coalition work is done when you take on those odd partners or people who you never would have thought uh, should be at the table and get them at the table. And I think, you know, the county engineer or those mobility coordinators are folks that some of us haven't tapped into here in Ohio. So that's my big takeaway from this uh, podcast. Yeah. And there's a huge uniting, uh, you know, it's easy to just meet with people, but when you have a funding opportunity and a goal in mind, it really can synergize that partnership too and solidify it. In Ohio, we have a lot of what we call youth-led prevention, where we have young people who actively work on areas uh, that are important to them uh, related to mental health and substance use. So I'm curious, are there any youth-led initiatives around transportation safety? Yeah, there are two fantastic organizations that come to mind. Um, and you hit on it. Thank you for asking this question, first of all, because this is, I, I love integrating youth into transportation safety. It's one of my passions. Um, but there are two wonderful organizations. The first is called SAD. It used to be known as Students Against Driving Drunk years ago, but now it's called Students Against Destructive Decisions. And they do a lot of work in the state of Ohio um, on impairment and other traffic safety issues. Another great organization is called the National Organizations for Youth Safety. It's a coalition and their, their primary focus is on transportation safety issues, um, especially addressing transportation safety from a much more equitable and systems perspective. They do a phenomenal job at that. And similarly, in Ohio, we really try to focus on prevention across the lifespan. Uh, so are there groups of older adults or aging adults who are working on this issue of transportation safety? Absolutely. Uh, AARP is a wonderful organization um, that does work at at the statewide level, as well as the AAA uh, Research Foundation. Uh, Again, your state highway safety office is a fantastic resource as well. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to meet with us to talk about impaired driving, expand our definition of impaired driving, and think about how we can be inclusive across all ages, right? Uh, Because we know that there is certainly a lot of work done in transportation safety around car seats and and that really infant and and youth population as well. Uh, So this has been a very productive conversation to me and I hope our listeners have enjoyed it. 
We're at the point of our podcast that our listeners love, and it's just an opportunity for them to get to know you better. And we call these the rapid fire question. Uh, So the first question is, I know you're from Ohio, so you're Midwest, but if you are eight hours or less from a location, do you travel by car or plane? None of the above. I love to take rail whenever possible or transit options. Um, But if it's eight hours or less and rail isn't an option, car. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I know you're in Boston, so this may be a controversial question, but I really want you to answer it. Dunkin' or Starbucks? Oh, donkeys. And finally, for our last question, we ask this of all of our podcast guests. You find yourself reaching into that bowl of M&Ms. Are you searching for the plane or peanut? Oh, I am searching for the red plain ones. Oh, so you even have a color. Oh, yes. And I refuse to eat blue M&Ms because I don't believe that there should be a blue and a yellow M&M together. Oh, uh, Everybody has their own story about M&M's, I find it. So thank you for sharing yours. Angie, overall, we really want to thank you for sharing your time and experience with us. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to the Ohio Center of Excellence Behavioral Health Prevention and Promotion Podcast, Prioritizing and Prevention. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with others post about it on social media, or set the podcast to automatically download to your favorite channels. To catch all the latest from the Center of Excellence, follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, X, Facebook at OHPreventionCOE, that's OHPreventionCOE, or visit us at preventioncoe.ohio.gov to sign up for a monthly newsletter. As we wrap season one, I would be remiss if I didn't thank all the people behind the scenes who make this podcast work. Um, I won't name them all because I'm at risk of forgetting someone, uh, but I don't get to do the good work on camera with our guests without so many people who work so hard behind the scenes, doing research, uh, writing scripts, doing filming, doing editing. This podcast is truly a labor of love by many, and I am proud to represent those people on uh, camera or on your uh, listening device, whatever you're listening on. So thank you. And we look forward to starting season two in 2024. This has been the Prioritizing Prevention Podcast. For more episodes, you can find us on Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, Apple Music, and many more. This program is funded by Ohio Mental Health and Addiction Services. And for more information about us, please visit preventioncoe.ohio.gov. Thank you for listening.